Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack family. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 126. I'm assuming that the entire six-pack family knows that all media types, television, radio, podcasts, and print media, manipulate their audiences for a particular agenda. In this episode, I'm going to explain to you how you've been manipulated once again. So stay tuned. Hey, Michael Boris here, founder and CEO of Church Militant. Come on over to our website, churchmilitant.com, and get an honest view on all things inside and outside the church. We are the fastest growing Catholic media apostolate in the world, and we have one mission, and that is serving Catholics like you. We have daily discussion, commentary, and news to keep you informed. So what are you waiting for? Visit churchmilitant.com today. This is the definition of manipulation, the action of manipulating someone in a clever or unscrupulous way. This means that not all manipulation is bad. Sometimes it's just clever. I have a confession to make. Over the last 17 weeks, I've tried to cleverly manipulate you. Well, actually, I'm not sure that I've been manipulating you at all, because you're not supposed to notice when you're being manipulated, and no one has ever had to wonder what I'm thinking or trying to say. It's probably just better to say that everything I've done in every single segment of every single episode over the last 17 weeks has been planned to culminate into this episode of The Cantankerous Catholic. It's been my intention to help you to become the warriors for Christ that he expects all of us to be. Jesus wants nothing less than for us to have the zeal of the Christians of the first century after Pentecost. As Catholic Americans, we have to work now more than ever to save both the church in America and our great nation, and that means becoming a warrior. There was a time in America that politics and our Catholic faith had little to do with each other, but that all began to change in 1973 with the Supreme Court's infamous Roe decision. Today, the Catholic faith and politics have become inseparable. Everything, and I do mean everything, is about our faith and politics. We're obligated to fight in politics because of our obligation to defend God's natural law and against the Democrats' constant perversion of it. We're obligated to fight in the Catholic Church in America to defend the constant 2,000-year teachings of the Church and, sadly, defend those teachings against a corrupt and evil hierarchy that is mostly in the pocket of the Democratic Party. That means standing up against our bishops and the Democrat Party on such issues as abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism, and that's what these last 17 weeks have been all about. 17 weeks ago, I began with episode 109, Lukewarmness is a Scourge of the Church, Father Bill Casey. I wanted to set the tone for talking about the need for all of us to evangelize. 
over the next nine weeks, I made you question yourselves about your commitment to Christ and his church and brought you interviews with Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, Philip Bellini, Bob Wilson and Brian Lee of St. Paul Street Evangelization and radio host and evangelist Terry Barber. I encouraged you to find ways to get really active in Catholic evangelization, and we'll talk more about that here a little later. Then for the next four weeks, I tried to excite your fighting spirit for America by appealing to your virtue of patriotism. I introduced you to a great American patriot of my day named Paul Harvey in order to help you rekindle your love for America a love that's been tempered with despair over the things that have happened since the last election in November. I told you about the evil Marxist agenda that's threatening to take over our nation today, a new tyranny that threatens every single liberty guaranteed to us by the United States Constitution. I wanted you to get mad. I didn't want you to get mad because I'm mad and misery loves company. I wanted you to get mad so you'll stand up and fight rather than just roll over and give up. I finished the last three weeks of my master plan by introducing you to Michael Voris. In episode 123, I played a vortex Michael did at Church Militant. The following week, I played an interview I'd done with Michael the previous month because Michael and his Church Militant are in a very hybrid type of news medium. They combat everything bad in the Catholic Church, and they battle the evils of Marxism in government and society just as aggressively. Often today, Marxism and the hierarchy are one and the same. Michael is far more eloquent than I am, but the one thing we most have in common is that you never have to wonder where we stand on anything. Then last week, I added to what Michael said by talking to you about bad, mediocre, and good bishops. The highlight of last week's episode was to tell you that there isn't one single member of the USCCB who's a good bishop. Some of you asked me about Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. My response to that is simple. Bishop Strickland is my favorite American bishop, but being my favorite is far from being the same as a good bishop. He seems like a good bishop to you because you've never been exposed to a good bishop before. Even a cursory study of history will show you what a good bishop is. Bishop Strickland is a mediocre bishop. Why? Because he lacks the courageous zeal of Peter, Paul, and the other apostles. He goes out on a limb and risks the ire of his fellow bishops from time to time, like he has by standing up for Father Altman, but you certainly don't see him doing anything to risk his mitre. You know, things like disciplining the dim politicians in his diocese, stopping communion in the hand, getting rid of altar girls, and telling his priests to face God instead of the people during Mass. No, Bishop Joseph Strickland is a mediocre bishop. The only American bishop I know of who's a good bishop is Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, but he's in Rome. Despite that he's a prince of the church, he's never hesitated to confront the errors and foolishness of Pope Frank while remaining a staunch defender of the Catholic Church and membership in it. And although we'll never know, I suspect that opposition to Bergoglio began in the very conclave that elected him, because almost immediately after ascending to the chair of Peter, he demoted Cardinal Burke. And let me be clear, 
Cardinal Burke has continually and unwaveringly defended the legitimate election of Bergoglio as our supreme pontiff. He's a good and true Catholic bishop in every way, and I'm proud to be able to call him my friend. Obviously, no priest can do what a bishop can do. They haven't the God-given authority. But two priests, among many, Father James Altman and Father Robert Altier, preach like a good bishop should preach. No bishop in this country preaches like they do, even Bishop Strickland. Father Altman preaches like an every Catholic guy. Father Altier is more cerebral, but just as powerful. Cardinal Burke is much more cerebral because he's a genuine scholar and intellectual, but he preaches powerfully as well. These are men we need to uphold as examples, and we must demand that our mediocre bishops be like them, courageous and orthodox, willing to sacrifice everything for souls. Yeah, the rest of our bishops just need to become Catholic. As I said last week, the bishops don't own the church. It's not their church. They're caretakers, stewards with authority, and they'll be judged according to how they cared for our souls. The Catholic Church doesn't belong to them. It belongs to us because Jesus established her for our eternal salvation, and we have a divine right to demand complete and absolute orthodoxy from our bishops and priests. When I worked in prison apostolate, the prisoners had to get used to new priests on a fairly regular basis because the archbishop would sort of shuffle them around. When a new priest was assigned who was less than orthodox, there was one prisoner who'd write a letter to the archbishop demanding another priest. His reasoning was that the prisoners weren't like free world people. If free world people didn't like the priest of a parish, they could just go to St. Miscellaneous down the street. He told the archbishop that prisoners couldn't do that and that they had just as much right to orthodoxy as everyone else. He was right, too. Every one of you need to be like that prisoner. Every one of you need to demand your right to orthodoxy, first from your bishop, then from your priest. By the way, the late Archbishop Oscar Lipscomb once told me that he appreciated those letters from that prisoner because they let him know which priests were truly orthodox and which were just trying to pull the wool over his eyes. If you're in a diocese with a mediocre bishop, he may appreciate letters about errant priests too. Whether he does or not, you need to write those letters. Make those bishops and priests know that you're not going to settle for bad or mediocre anymore. We must tell our bishops every single day that we demand orthodoxy. Don't get meek just because you're writing or speaking to a bishop. Yes, he has the legitimate authority over the diocese. Yes, Catholic morality demands that he be treated with respect according to the First and Eighth Commandments. But don't confuse respect with wimpiness, because the man with the crozier puts his pants on one leg at a time just the same way that you do. And I'm talking especially to you men. You need to put on your big boy pants and fight the way you would for your wives and children. You are fighting for your wives and children. When I talk about demanding orthodoxy from your bishop, I'm not just referring to catechetics. 
Tell your bishop he needs to stand up and discipline Democrat politicians in his diocese, if not for those poll souls, then for the souls of the other lay faithful. You need to tell your bishop to come clean publicly and tell everyone in the diocese that he's opposed to everything the Democrats stand for. You need to tell your bishop forcefully and repeatedly that you not only refuse to give money to the diocese until things are corrected, but that you'll work actively to convince as many Catholics as you can to withhold funding from the diocese as well. Look, folks, evangelization today in America doesn't mean just making new converts or reverts. Catholic evangelization means aggressively defending Catholic morality and dogma. Defending Catholic morality makes moral converts of Catholics and non-Catholics alike because defending Catholic morality is to defend natural law, human nature. All Catholic morality is based on natural law, the laws of nature we can demonstrably see in humans and the world around us. We know from the empirical evidence around us that when you attempt to pervert nature, you always end up in trouble. Not just sometimes, but all the time. The problems with tampering with nature are sometimes immediately recognizable and other times only are recognizable over time. For example, no one saw a problem with contraception when it became easily available in the form of a pill. In fact, tens of thousands of Catholics across the country walked out of the Mass the day Humanae Vitae, which condemned the use of contraception, was read from Catholic pulpits in 1968. That made priests afraid to tell people that its use was wrong. Subsequently, today over 90% of Catholics live in a chronic state of mortal sin by practicing contraception. In 1968, Catholics were clueless about why artificial contraception is wrong. But what's been the long-term effect? In order to maintain its population, a country requires a minimum fertility rate of 2.1 children per woman. Do you know what our fertility rate is in America? We produce a fertility rate of 1.6 children per woman. In other words, by perverting nature with artificial contraception, we're driving ourselves into extinction. For the first time in our history, there are more 80-year-old people than there are 2-year-olds. That's just one example of things to talk about when defending natural law. Evangelizing means saving the church in America and saving America herself. Yes, evangelization is making new converts and reverts, Yes, evangelization is also alerting sleepy Americans to what's going on, showing liberals the errors of their ways, helping people to love America and the Constitution again, and helping to dispel the evils of anti-Catholicism. So you see, that's the reason I talked about evangelization, then America, then the evil men leading the Catholic hierarchy. There's a lot of talk now, and ever since Francis became Pope, about the end of the world being near, that Jesus may be about to return to destroy the world. That may or may not be true. I really don't know. It's above my pay grade. What I do know is this. If he comes back soon, do you honestly want him to catch you doing nothing? Let's say Jesus doesn't come back anytime soon. When you die and death comes for all of us when we least expect it, you aren't going immediately to heaven. 
Nobody does. First, there's this little thing called your particular judgment. If you do nothing, if you fail to be the warrior Jesus expects you to be, what in the world are you going to say to him when he asks you why you did nothing? The church on earth, you and I, are called the church militant for a reason. Jesus won't want to hear excuses. He won't want to hear that you're too old or too young or don't have enough knowledge or that you're not creative enough. He won't want to hear you say you were too busy or that the kids had soccer practice every night. He'll only want to hear one thing when he asks you what you did for him, that you ran the race hard and well. He doesn't expect results. He doesn't expect us to win. He only expects our most sincere and diligent effort. Results and success are his job, but he'll judge you based on your effort. You certainly realize that this podcast isn't all about the Catholic faith alone. It's also about politics, patriotism, and the other moral virtues, and things personal to you that will help you to become better spouses, parents, Catholics, and Americans. As I said earlier, Catholicism and politics are inseparable. Everything, absolutely everything, is about our faith and politics. Despite that this podcast is in the hybrid medium that it is, it's still evangelistic. Do you think everyone who listens to the cantankerous Catholic is Catholic? They're not. There are a lot of people who listen to this podcast because they want to hear a Catholic perspective on things, or they like the inescapable logic of natural law. In the process of appealing to these non-Catholics and lapsed Catholics, there have been conversions and reversions in the two years this show has existed. And I've not even tried to make conversions or reversions. The same will be true of you. You just have to get started. You don't have to know exactly what to do. Do you think I knew exactly what to do? This show has evolved over time. To paraphrase Nike, just do it. Blog or do a podcast about politics, morality, what the world calls social issues, history, or even the entertainment industry from a Catholic perspective. Review movies, plays, or television shows. Talk about parenting or personal finance. Virtually anything that you enjoy or are passionate about can be evangelistic, as long as you do it from an authentic Catholic perspective. Actually, I can't think of any topic that can be discussed without talking about it from a Catholic perspective. Talking about Barbie dolls and her clothes requires talking about modest dress something that only Catholics are still concerned about. See what I mean? Will you be alone out there? Only if you want to be. Someone recently told me that I was committing media suicide because I promote other apostolates and lead people away from the cantankerous Catholic. That person may be right, but I don't do this to bolster my ego or to brag about the number of listeners I have. I don't do this to make money. Heck, most months I don't even cover expenses. I do this for the sake of souls, my love for the Catholic Church, and my love of America. The point is that I believe good apostolates should support and promote one another. After all, we're all on the same team. 
If you decide to do the right thing and begin a blog apostolate, a podcast apostolate, or some other apostolate, I'll be more than happy to promote you. I'll help you get donors, listeners, readers, or viewers. In this week's show notes, you'll find more links and resources than ever before to help you get started. If you feel overwhelmed or unsure about something, my email address will be right there for you to reach out to me. Don't worry about interrupting me or intruding on my schedule. I exist for you because of Jesus. Just start your apostolate now. Don't let Jesus catch you sleeping. As you know, I don't like asking for your financial support. I always want a win-win situation whenever possible. Well, I've got a way for you to help this apostolate without you having to do anything you're not already doing. Everybody shops on Amazon. I've developed an affiliate relationship with Amazon. When you visit cantankerouscatholic.com and click on the episodes page, blog page, or about the show page, on the right-hand side of the page you'll see Amazon ads for Catholic books and merchandise. There's no price difference from Amazon's site, but if you click on something you're interested in and buy it, Amazon will pay me a small commission just for you clicking on that ad. It doesn't stop there either. Anytime you're on Amazon and find things you want to buy, send me the link to the items and I'll send you another link to click when you're ready to buy. You won't pay a dime more for the item, but Amazon will pay me a commission. That way you can help to financially support this apostolate just by doing what you were going to do anyway. Remember, visit the episodes, blog, and about the show pages to find Catholic books and merchandise, and send me links to other things you want to buy on Amazon, and I'll send you the links that will pay this apostolate a small commission. And I thank you in advance for your support. Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to Politico. Democrats were hoping to continue their gains in the suburbs at a special election in Texas' 6th Congressional District. Instead, Democrats were eliminated from the race as two Republican candidates advanced to the runoff, ensuring the seat would return to GOP hands. Yee-haw! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 4 Hats off to National Catholic Register. Bishop Michael Hepner of Crookston, Minnesota, who resigned in disgrace, was the first U.S. church leader to undergo an investigation pursuant to the reforms announced in Pope Francis' 2019 motu proprio, You Are the Light of the World. Other reforms included a national hotline, a third-party reporting system, and having the Metropolitan Archbishop of the Promise oversee the investigation of a local bishop. That's kind of like a fox looking at the hen house. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show note. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to the Washington Examiner. 
Space Force Lieutenant Colonel Matthew Lohmeyer was relieved of command after appearing on a podcast to promote his book, which asserts a neo-Marxist agenda is transforming military culture. Lohmeyer said, The diversity, inclusion, and equity industry and the trainings we are receiving in the military is rooted in critical race theory, which is rooted in Marxism. The Space Force said Lohmeyer was relieved due to loss of trust and confidence in his ability to lead. That just makes me mad! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number two. Hats off to Just the News. The FBI has reclassified the 2017 Congressional Baseball shooting by gunman James Hodgkinson as a domestic violent extremist instead of the initial conclusion of suicide by cop, which had sparked outrage from survivors. Hodgkinson, a radical left-wing activist, fired more than 100 rounds at the congressman during their baseball outing. House Majority Whip Steve Scalise, who spent months recovering from the shooting, said the gunman came to kill Republicans. Busted! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number one. Hats off to the Daily Wire. A shutdown pipeline in the southeastern United States caused headaches for motorists for almost a week as gas stations ran out of fuel. But in Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer is working to shut down a 65-year-old pipeline that pumps oil from Canada to the United States. But international trade lawyer Lawrence Herman notes that the Michigan governor has no authority to nix a pipeline because it was an agreement struck between Canada and the United States. You're an idiot! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. Along with teaching you Catholic dogma, doctrine, and morality on the Catholic boot camp, I'm obligated to teach you about things you've previously been taught are okay, but aren't really. That would include abuses in the liturgy. The absolute greatest abuse today is communion in the hand. Rather than talk about this myself, I found a panel discussion called The Download on the Church Militant website. That's something you can only access as a Church Militant Premium member. Michael Vorst very graciously gave me permission to play this particular Premium member download for you. Michael discusses this very important issue with four members of his staff. It's the best discussion I've heard on the topic. I highly recommend that you become a premium member at Church Militant. If you can afford to go to Burger King, you can afford this. But in the meantime, let's listen to this discussion. 
Hello everyone and welcome to The Download. Perhaps the greatest area of abuse is introduced into the life of the church in the wake of Vatican II by abuse-minded clerics and theologians was in the liturgy, the Mass. From turning the altar around to face the people to horrible non-Catholic music to about a zillion other things, one glaring abuse that emerged was reception of Holy Communion in the hand. This has proven to be an unmitigated disaster, and it shouldn't come as any surprise that it was introduced by wicked prelates like Joseph Bernadine of Chicago. Of course, he wasn't alone. He had a powerful, large minority of liberal anti-Catholic bishops on his side who were facing down a group of bored, bureaucratic, somewhat naive bishops, which allowed Bernadine and his crowd to ram through their changes. The result of all of this, the Blessed Sacrament is disrespected, ignored, not believed in, abused, and has sacrileges committed against it. This is why today so many prelates are willing to just open up reception to practically anyone, divorced and civilly remarried, as we saw in Rome in the Synod, practicing homosexuals, Lutherans, as we talked about last week, and anyone else they can think of. So let's turn our attention now to how we got to this point. Christine, let's talk about, first of all, all of the sacrilege, everything. This is, this is, I, most Catholics don't realize this because we've had it now for 40 years. Yeah. Anybody under 40, heck, anybody under 50, this is just the way it's always been to them. Yeah. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, which is the law of life. How we pray informs what we believe, which informs how we live. And that includes all the liturgical trappings, including communion on the hand versus on the tongue. John Zmirak, who's a great Catholic author, he's been in Miked Up before, a good friend of ours, he has a really good, succinct quote that puts it all in perspective. He said, from now on, to get a movie ticket, Americans should have to kneel before a consecrated celibate wearing ceremonial robes and take the ticket between their teeth, never daring to touch it with their hands. Within a generation or so, they would all develop certain ideas about movie tickets and their significance. <laughs> now take the Eucharist. Reverse the process, treating it like a movie ticket. Enough said. And that's exactly what we have today. The way we, te we treat handing out Holy Communion now, it's like we're, we're taking a movie ticket, which is no, it's no surprise that something between 50 to 75% of people going to Mass today don't even believe in the real presence. It's just a complete well, wholesale loss they? of belief. Exactly. It's the way we treat it. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is if you go back to the 16th century Protestant reformers, revolutionaries, really, their main theological aim, they had political aims too, but we're not talking about that. Their main theological aim was destruction of the holy sacrifice. To Martin Luther, he called it abominable. In fact, I wanted to read a quick quote here. He said, it is indeed upon the mass as on a rock that the whole papal system is built with its monasteries, bishoprics, collegiate churches, altars, ministries, doctrine, etc., with all its guts. All these cannot fail to crumble once their sacrilegious and abominable mass fails. That was his well, program. He got, he got that right. He got that absolutely right. And so he set out, along with other reformers as well, Cranmer in England, to destroy the holy sacrifice by, one of their ways was, changing liturgical trappings and things like that. For instance, they got rid of the eastward-facing altar, because that means sacrifice. They destroyed altars, the beautiful high altars, absolutely destroyed them, all sorts of iconoclasm, destroyed vestments, vessels, anything that would make it seemed like it was a, a sacred act, which was the holy sacrifice. And one of the key things they introduced was communion standing and on the hand, because the point was they wanted to take away from the, the faithful any idea that there was anything special 
about this piece of bread that was being handed out, and they succeeded very well yes, because there did. was complete loss. Yes, they did. And then, of course, there was great resistance, you know, on the uh, countries and uh, dioceses of Europe that you know resisted the Re- Reformation or you know reverted back after the uh, Jesuits came on. However, fast forward about 400 years and you run into a bunch of bishops who are essentially Martin Luther's well, yeah, you have, in Europe. Well, you have the Protestantism of that day, which the theological viewpoints stay there in Germany, Belgium, Netherlands. They stay in that area and they begin to seep into the universities over the next two or three hundred years. And so you have a, re, uh, a resurgence of these types of theological points, um, you know, around the turn of the century and into the ultimately about the 1950s is when it really takes hold um, in theological circles. And this idea of communion in the hand comes back up again, about 1950s. So that is then kind of with your minority of your heterodox bishops. That's where it stays. But it's in Germany, Netherlands, and Belgium. That seems to be where all the trouble comes from these days. They don't call them the low countries for nothing. <laughs> so, that's that's really cool. Apologies. So, that create, so they, start to introduce, they start to introduce this communion in the hand thing there in Europe. And it kind of starts as an abuse. Okay, And then it develops into being kind of accepted by the hierarchy in a certain sense of, well, this is the custom now. So it's like, I've been beating my wife for this long, but now uh, this is just how we talk to each other. I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're saying so give us here. your blessing. Yeah, it's, it's really in complete ignorance. And so that's where the idea that ultimately gets implemented in uh, the United States, which Brad will get into um, through our bishops conferences, is that they try to portray that America had a prevailing custom of receiving in the hand also like Europe, which was not true. It's actually in America being, or Europe. <laughs> yeah. Well, in those countries it was, but yeah, not across Europe by any means. It was in small dioceses and, you know, in the low countries, but they portrayed like this was the case. And it was actually almost the exact opposite, which Brad will go through. Yeah. When we get to the, uh, when we get to the United States, I mean, look, they did one thing in Europe, in Belgium, the Netherlands. They just said, well, let's just start doing this without permission. And then once the ball kind of got rolling, of course, the American bishops, Bernadine, et cetera, were like, oh, hey, let's jump on that train. Quick, guys, come on, grab your riders and let's we hop on. <laughs> well, what happened with uh, specifically, like Matt was saying, is Belgium, Holland, that's where the Dutch catechism comes out with Skillebex, destroying the belief in the real All presence. All at this same time period. In this late, after Vatican II, Cardinal Rangis said, he was the under Arinze, or the Congregation of Divine Worship, he said it's not a Vatican II thing. So we'd like to dispel that right now. It's not a Vatican II thing. It's also not a Novus Ordo thing. It's an institutionalized abuse that comes part and parcel with. But Cardinal Stunens and Cardinal Alfrank in Holland and Belgium basically did this in complete disobedience. Paul VI is on record. There's dialogue back and forth saying stop. They say, oh, we can't stop. Well, you yank them out, and you find someone who can stop the disobedience. Yeah, we don't know how to stop this. Memorial Ali Domini, Congregation of Divine Worship, 1969, written and signed off by Paul VI, who was very instrumental in getting this instruction written up, basically said, okay, where there's a prevailing custom, I don't want this going on, stop it, all the way through the document. Last paragraph of the document said, oh, but if it's a prevailing custom, if it's a prevailing custom already, in those countries where there's prevailing custom, that only meant Belgium, Holland, Netherlands, a few places, all around the world was not a prevailing custom. You have the right, by two-thirds majority, secret ballot, if it's a prevailing custom, to petition Rome with the reasons why, but then he pulled all the bishops in the world, 
put it in there and said, the majority of the bishops do not want this. And that was in the instruction of Memoriale Domini. That they do not want that this. That they do not want this. He said, basically, ask mom, but mom's against this too. So, <laughs> basically, NCCB meeting used that window. In the minutes of the meeting that we obtained from Notre Dame archives, it shows that they did not get a two-thirds majority. It was voted down by secret ballot. Three times. Three times it was voted down, 1970, 73, and finally in 77 at the meeting. It was also voted down. It's in the minutes of the meeting. And basically, they went around that. They also did not, as per the minutes of the meeting, determine what's prevailing custom because bishops didn't want to say, well, either I'm a renegade or I'm incompetent in my diocese. So those two, in Cardinal Kuhn's great canon lawyer, Fischialis, to diocese Madison before he got killed, said permission under deceit is no permission. Rome says you need permission. They didn't get that appropriately. Yeah. If they want to get it now, they need to do that now, yeah. but they and did the, not get it. And the minutes of that meeting bear Prove all that out. that. And you can get those yourself from Notre Dame Archives. Just call Simon. He'll be happy to work you with you. <laughs> Simon, one of the great concerns, obviously, as mentioned, there's a million things here. You're changing theology, this and that and everything. But let's talk specifically about sacrilege. Yeah. Uh, sacrilegious Simon. Not really. Um, <laughs> when you receive in the hands... I'll, I'll sell sacred things. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Simon me. Um, <laughs> Uh, there's a, I mean, there's not a danger of it. It's the reality. Yeah, it's the reality of it. Okay, so we've discussed a lot of politics. We've discussed a lot of kind of theology. Let's discuss some practical stuff. Okay, so if you want to consecrate the Eucharist, you want to consecrate Jesus Christ on the altar, you need two things. You need a priest and you need bread. And the bread is bread. That's what it is. Now, then, when the consecration happens, a substantial change takes place. The bread um, ceases to be bread, and it is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But that's just a substantial change. The appearance of the bread, in every single way, it still behaves exactly like bread. So it tastes like bread. It looks like bread. It appears to be bread. It crumbles like bread. There's a reason that we talk about crumbs and breadcrumbs, because yeah, that's what happens. You can buy big containers of, of bread Of breadcrumbs. And you know what? It ain't difficult <laughs> to make breadcrumbs. You, 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 you open your packet of wonder bread, and there are crumbs at the bottom. So this is the danger. So if you notice a priest, a good priest who knows his liturgical stuff, he's holding his fingers like this. He doesn't, he doesn't as the rubrics say, he does not disjoin his fingers and thumbs, except when he's to pick up the host. They're extraordinarily careful about cleaning the vessels, um, about making sure that you uh, don't lose crumbs. Now, if you take that Eucharist, take the host, put it into somebody's mouth, there's a very limited chance of losing particles. There may be some particles stuck to the priest's hands. There was a pattern underneath Which your is chin, why there's a pattern under the chin. In order which so, gets cleaned also. Which gets cleaned also. You know, the priest is the only one touching it. His hands are very carefully clean. It is the theological doctrine of the church that the smallest particle that is sensible, that is, appears to the senses, that contains Jesus Christ. So it's there not is. a question of, yeah, it is, my apologies, is Jesus Christ. Um, it, it's not a question, yeah, it doesn't matter, we've got most of him. No, 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 there is no most of him. <laughs> you, drop, you drop the crumb, you drop Jesus. Don't do that, it's not cool. Yeah, they've this is they've very, even uh, taken that point so far as to, Aquinas writes about this, about how uh, when you digest the host, how long until... About nine minutes. Yeah, it's about nine minutes. They came up with an actual number. Yeah, how long is it actually substantially sensed by your body Pat in the sense that it, yeah. is it actual you know real there's actually, particles there's actually a beautiful meditative 
devotional practice that Father Pablo Straub, God rest his soul, used to practice. He said, for about nine minutes, you have Jesus within you. It's like the nine months that Mary carried Jesus' mm. womb. So we're almost like Mary at that point after receiving so you. So there's that beautiful moment there. He's, tr- yeah. he's tremendous. I want to talk on something just to make sure because whenever you bring this topic up, what do you hear from the other side? Well, St. Cyril said, make a throne for your king and blah, blah, and this whole business. Okay, a number of things about this. First of all, that that reference back in time where, well, that's the way they did it then, so that's the way we have to do it now, is called archaeologism, which is just this, you know, it's the archaeology of it, and we just have to continue it. First of all, the... Two things on that. One, the principle isn't applied in everything. It just happens to be applied in this. If you were going to be archaeological about this, then half of us would be sitting out in front of church in sackcloth and ashes, serving out our penance for nine months. Public public (laughs) confession. Public Public confession. If the people who want to, you know, raise this point and say, because look, a lot of our viewers hear this, they bring it up, and the priests tell them. But one priest in this diocese, Archdiocese of Detroit, is very big on this. He puts that out there. It's on his Facebook page and everything else. Oh, no, that's the way they used to do it. And here's the quote from St. Cyril. One person. One person that we're not even necessarily sure is True. attributed. Let's assume it is attributed to him for the sake of that. It still doesn't mean anything because there, you know, it was the church looked at the practice and said, no, for the very reasons we're talking about here. It's abuse, loss of faith, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the church has the right. That's not a dogmatic teaching. The church has the right to say, that's how we did it then. There were problems with it, so we're fixing it, and here's how we're doing it moving forward. And also the way forward. they did it back then was completely different yeah, from yeah. how they did it now. You used to do this. Someone says, oh, you put out your hand. No. You put your hands out, Simon. All right. You would show up with a... The Dominicale, uh, a, a, a Lord's uh, cloth. You yes, have to wash Lord, your hands first. Right. Yeah. The Lord's cloth. It was put... The host was put on the cloth, and how would you receive? You would receive like that. You still never touched it, never with, your touched it with your hands. It was like a personal corporate. Well, it's like, it's, yes. like, it's like your mom always used to say, don't touch that, you don't know where it's been. You know, I think I would say, don't touch Jesus with these, you know where they've been. The church was persecuted for 300 years. So even trying to say, well, the church thought that we should do it this way. No, it was, it, they were killing you. It was illegal. You were dying. <laughs> it was people, you know. So. And it, was, it, was, it was at the height of the Aryan Aryan crisis when yeah. there was a wholesale loss of belief in the world. Yeah, the bishops and, themselves who were like, yeah. you know, and all of this went together. You said wonderfully before the show, you know, oh, imagine that. It's like when bishops uh, uh, stop believing the divinity of Christ yeah. at the same time they abuse the, abuse <laughs> the blessed <laughs> sacrament. Another, another great line John Zemirak had when we interviewed him on this. If you if we continue on this track, at some point you might as well just pre-consecrate the host and put them in the pews and let people <laughs> and let people just you know or fill up a Gatorade cooler as they walk in. That's it's, what it's some like, parishes do, it's insane. Like. <laughs> but the point to drive home with the you know this you know oh well they used to do it like this in the year three twelve or whatever. It's like well okay well the church has existed for seventeen hundred years after that and there have been changes wisdom, to developed. further protect Thanks. the sacrament. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's sure. why there's laws. Canon law is meant to protect the sacraments. And we've moved beyond that to a safer place. The reason you shouldn't really, it's not, this isn't sinful, but the reason they never let people communicate with the chalice is because there's a greater loss of liquid falling off your lips than having a piece of bread placed on your tongue. So they just said, you don't have to receive Christ. You don't need to receive from the chalice. Only the priest does. So we're just going to take that off because it's 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 more dangerous. And that was actually lose. reintroduced by the Protestant reformers, you know, receiving yeah. under both kinds. How much precious blood is sitting on the cufflinks of little kids all over the world? You know, 
Drink from the cup, a little bit of that well, later. I mean, there's my another goodness. thing too with what we're talking about with loss of particles here. That's actually there's a canonical uh, illegality with the loss mm -hmm. of particles. Yeah. They actually canon law is just to institute theology. It's to safeguard and present these truths. The sine seven sine qua non conditions that come with memorial Domini in 1969. This is another fallback on Paul VI. He said, well, if you think you can have a prevailing cause, and you think you can get permission, and you can come to Rome, and we all said no, it's still got to be done with these seven conditions. Right. And number three was it must cause an increase in faith. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That it happen. was written in the original French. We might actually have you take Go a look at that. the Chicago Archdiocese if there's been an increase in faith. What is it, a quarter of their parishes are going to be closed in the next three oh, years? Yeah. And this, this, it must cause, everybody says, well, it may not do anything or it may cause a loss, but no one ever argued that it caused an increase. He said three, it must cause. It's a condition. Yes. A uh, person who actually backed me up on it was Father Stravinsky. He's a taught French, yeah, and Peter he actually Stravinsky's. read the He's original French, and he said, yeah, that's what it means. Number five, it says there can be no loss of particles. A canon lawyer, Father Coons, out in Dane, Wisconsin, he said that there, by pastoral experience, I'm morally certain there will be a loss of particles. Therefore, I'm morally certain I can't keep the conditions. Therefore, I'm morally certain I don't have permission. Therefore, I'm morally certain that I uh, am disobedient. Not only sacrilegious, but it's disobedient. disobedient. Yeah, I mean, unless people are going to say, okay, I've received Jesus in the hands, and now my hands are going to be cleaned with the care and attention that the priest gives to his. We actually did that once. You know, I was serving yeah. mass yeah, out yeah. in, out in, That's um, a good story. Yeah. it was Father uh, uh, Ville, I think, from Miliezu. And I was a person out in helping out with the Eucharistic Marian Conference out in, Day in Wyoming, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We just got done going through this stuff at breakfast. He was going to be saying Mass for 500 people at the conference. Just got done exactly what we talked about right here. I don't think he ever heard it before. I was serving for him. Right at communion time, he said, uh, we're going to have a minister of the wash bowl. Never heard it before, <laughs> but why not, right? He said, if you want to receive communion in the hand, you may do so, but please step aside and have the minister, who was me, Rinse your hand before you move on. Two people received in the hand that day out of 500 people who would have all just come up. Conditions were met because no loss of particles. The water there was taken poured down the squarium. And number three, they actually thought even more about the particles. It caused yeah. an increase in faith. So I think That's, we kept all five conditions. When, I, when I came good. back to the church 13 years ago, not knowing any better, I used to receive in the hand. But you know, having come into the church with such an intense love of the Eucharist and a deep belief in, in the sacredness of who I was receiving, after a while I became very disturbed in conscience because I could see the little particles on my hand. I did my best to sort of, you know, lick them up, but after a while I was like, it's not worth it. I'm not going through this, you know, you know, Stress. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just going to receive it on my tongue. That's it. Yeah, so. it's, it really is amazing. I think that another excuse I actually want to mention is people say, well, wait a minute, are you saying that at the Last Supper, the apostles knelt down and Jesus gave them the bread in their mouth? Well, first of all, they were priests. <laughs> That's what that meal was. It instituted the priesthood. So, no, priests aren't sitting there receiving, as you see that even today. But, again, it's one of these, like, go back to this is the way it was, and it's either out of context or it doesn't apply. We're not priests. We, you know, our hands aren't consecrated. What was it? St. Teresa of Avila, I believe it was, had a vision of souls in hell, and she saw that the, she knew who the priests were because their hands that had been anointed with oil at their uh, ordinations were burning more intensely. So she knew who the souls of the priests were right there. We don't have that. We should never be touching. The, and is there some massive emergency of some kind? And it's certainly not habitual well, that you should never be touching the sacred species ever. At the Last Supper, too, there's a debate whether Jesus put the morsel on the tongue because there was this Jewish custom when some of you have a guest in the house that you place it on the tongue. 
And when he dipped a little morsel, very more, small particle, into the, uh, he said he dipped it, it was first intention, and right. he would have placed that, not in wetness in the hand, right, right. but on the right tongue of the Judas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Redemptionis Sacramentum, I'd like to read on air. If there is a risk of profanation, this is current law from Rome. If there's a risk of profanation, meaning loss of particles, then Holy Communion should not be given in the hand of the faithful. That's current, Redemptionis Sacramentum, that's number 92, uh, the germ, the parent of all germs, general instruction of Roman missiles throughout the world. Long so. story short for all the people uh, watching, you know, you got to you gotta stop. Right. <laughs> you, you just, just have to stop. This. Just stop doing it. Kneel down. It's God. It's the king of the universe. Kneel down and receive him where you are Even not Even if you're committing. the only one. It doesn't matter. Who cares? You let people laugh yeah. at you. Let yeah. some priest come up and yell at you. We've all heard from some priests. Yeah. Can't do that. You know, who great. cares? You know, God's what's important here, not some pre- liberal priest's right. opinion. He saw the whole thing predicated on the mass. And if that falls, so you're never going to have vocations. You're never going to have fervent vocations. You're never going to have liturgical reform without getting rid of communion. In the hands. It's because communion, you know, our Lord is the source and summit of the Christian life. If we right. don't put, you know, all of our focus and energy and attention into that, what do you expect? You're going to fall apart. Catholics need to begin to understand just how far off the rails the church has gone, and the list is nearly endless. This isn't just panic scares, the perversion of the social justice uh, teachings of the church, the liturgical abuses, the homosexual priest problem, the deformation that most of today's bishops went through in seminary in the 1960s to the 1980s, and even going on to, the, to a degree today. We could go on and on, but that's all for another show. For all now, for what we need to do is pray that these evils be addressed by heaven directly. The church is so far off the rails that no human effort can realistically be expected to bring it back. We all need to do everything we can do, absolutely, but this is impossible without God. But as we know, with God, all things are possible. For the Deeply Concerned Panel, I'm Michael Vorst. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom has gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Anthony of Padua. He said, Actions speak louder than words. Let your words teach and your actions speak. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. A party of men were once visiting their friend at his home. There was some drinking, then an argument over a card game. They began to curse and use vulgar and filthy language, and they did it so loudly that it could be heard outside. The homeowner, a God-fearing man who was upset by the language, tried to get the men to stop, but they paid no attention to him. So he went over to the wall and took down the large crucifix that hung there. He took it out of the room. The other men looked astonished and asked him why he'd done that. He answered, Words like yours crucified Christ. Don't torment him by making him listen to any more of your cursing. The men were so ashamed and touched by this lesson that they soon left for their homes. They never forgot the incident. Most people wouldn't have the courage to do what this man did because they'd rather displease God to avoid displeasing men. Never allow cursing to go on in your home or in your presence. Guard yourself from that evil habit that hurts the crucified Savior. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. 
Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.